So I pulled a little bit of an audible last night as I was putting together the lesson for today. I mentioned last week that I've taught this class two different ways. I, I've taught it where I started kind of in the beginning of our chart, right, where I started at the beginning and I worked our way to the English Bible, and then I've taught it before where I started at our English Bible and tried to work our way back. And last week, that's how I began doing the class. We talked, we talked about some aspects of translation, and then I just couldn't, it just wasn't sitting right with me. I just didn't feel comfortable with it. So last night, I decided that even though we started that way, I was going to abandon that and go back to the beginning, okay? So I apologize if that causes you any consternation, but it just wasn't sitting well with me. So I like it better this way, and that's what we're going to do. So tonight, so we've, we've talked a little bit about Revelation, um, but we're going to pick it up at Inspiration. Okay, so we'll look at Inspiration, and then we'll follow the flow of the Bible as it comes to us. Okay? Part of the reason I was doing that was because I was going to go back into a little bit more on translation and cover some of the manuscripts, but then it gets difficult to talk about the manuscripts if you haven't talked about the textual criticism process, and I thought, you know what, let's just do it in order. So that's what we're going to do. So tonight we're going to talk about Inspiration. Um, but just as a review, you know, we talked last week about the Bible, and contrary to the definition given by the Soviet government, this, this is probably a little bit more accurate, right? It's the very words of God. So it's the means by which God has revealed himself to us. And if you remember last week when we talked, we said the only way we can really know the thoughts of somebody is if, in fact, they communicate those thoughts. And so if our goal is... To know what God is thinking, like Moses said, Lord, let me know who you are because I want to please you. The only way for him to get his thoughts into our mind is to communicate those to us. And so by doing so, then we can ultimately have changes in our lives, and this whole process is done like this. And so tonight we're going to look at this concept of inspiration. So we're, very, we're back at the very beginning God is revealing himself to us, and he chose to do so by the written words. Now, if he's going to elicit people to write this book, he's got to communicate a message to them. He has, he has to reveal this to the writers so that they, they may, in fact, write what he's intending for them to write, right? Write what he wants them to know. And so that brings us to this concept of biblical inspiration, Okay, this is where we, all, we have really the thoughts in God's mind as he reveals to them, to the human author's mind, which they put to paper, and that will ultimately lead to the original manuscripts of the Bible. So everything we talk about tonight is going to be with respect to the original manuscripts of the Bible. Now, there's a word for that that we'll be using. Like If you, if you study the, the true process... Um, people use the word autographs. Okay, so in textual criticism, the word autograph is the original manuscript. And that, that, that applies to anything, right? That applies to the original Iliad manuscript that was written, or the original Odyssey, or an original work of Shakespeare. The one that they actually pin themselves is called the autograph. And then everything else from that will generally be called a manuscript, and that's a copy of the original. Okay, So tonight we're talking about the process by which God allowed the human authors to write 
these original autographs. And so let me start by giving you a definition. We use this concept of inspiration. So when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the act of God, the Holy Spirit, enabling the Bible writers to record in God-chosen words, infallibly and inerrantly, the truth God wanted revealed. The act of God, the Holy Spirit, enabling the Bible writers to record in God-chosen words, infallibly and inerrantly, the truth God wanted revealed. Now, that's a loaded definition, right? That, that, that is packed full of key words. Each one brings a certain meaning, and each one we'll see as necessary as we move through the night. Okay, but this is a divine act. So this is God superintending so that the writers wrote what he wants them to, to write down. Now, where do we get this from? We'll, we'll keep coming back to the various aspects of this, but where do we get this? Well, we get this from a number of key texts in Scripture. Okay, we're going we're gonna to let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible has the right to do that, so let's see what the Bible says about where the Bible came from. And, of course, the most direct passage in all of this is 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is where we actually even get some of the concept of inspiration from from this passage. 2 Timothy 3.16. This is the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his disciple in the truth and in the faith. And he writes in chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up in, um, in verse 12, just for a little context. He says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and apostles will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so you notice how he says a couple different things. Twice he refers to scriptures. And that would have been the, the Bible, if you will, that was available to Timothy and to Paul at the time that this was written. So this would have been the Old Testament. And he says these holy scriptures were able to make you wise for salvation. Right? They contain the information needed to know about salvation. And then he tells us where they came from. He says all scriptures God breathed. And, is, and so if you have, if you have a, so I'm reading from the NIV. If you read from an older translation like the King James Version, it probably says inspired. Right? All scripture is given by inspiration would probably be the phrase you'd read, and a number of translations will say that. And so from that, we get this doctrine of inspiration. That's, that's where this concept comes from. Doctrine of inspiration. 
Now, it's kind of um, it's kind of backwards, if you will, because generally when we think of inspiration, we think of me as, let's say, the, the artist or uh, the composer. I'm inspired or something inspires me to write something. And so we, we kind of get this concept of inspiration. But, but in actuality, it should be the doctrine of expiration. Because the word that says all scripture is inspired by God literally means God breathed. And so it's not so much inspiration, it's really expiration, because the focus is the source. It's God. He's like breathing out these words, breathing out these concepts, these themes, and that's what these people, these authors write down. And so this, this, this scripture, the very source of the scripture is from God, right? It's, it's a divine product. And notice that in addition to being able to make us wise for salvation, they're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped. Okay, so the idea is being equipped. So let me just come, I'm going to come back to the slide in a second, but let's just look at um, some of the affirmations here in the text. So according to this passage, the extent of inspiration is all. Okay, because he, he uses the word all scripture. So we know that the extent of inspiration, or if you want to be technically correct, expiration, is all scripture. The means, once again, just to emphasize it's God breathed. The Bible is a divine product. Its very source comes from God. And the purpose of the inspiration is that we can be equipped, right? It, it is useful, it is profitable for training, for, salva for knowing salvation, and for being equipped. Now let's go back to this for a second. A couple other concepts as it relates to inspiration. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read through just a few verses here. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is really talking about revelation and communication. How do we know what the, what the inner thoughts of a person are? So if we pick it up in um, if we pick it up in Let's, verse, let's go to verse 9, I think. Well, let's go back to verse 6. I know this would take us a little bit longer, but it's probably best to do that. He says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thought of a man except the spirits and the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is why this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truth and spiritual words. Okay? And so the Spirit of God knows knows the hearts and thoughts of God and then expresses those to us. That's the concept. That's why this is the act of God the Holy Spirit enabling the Bible writers to record what the truth that God wanted revealed. If we follow this up, if you just flip over to Acts, Acts chapter 1, I always kind of find this interesting, uh, nestled here in Acts in a couple places, we see the Holy Spirit's influence in writing the book of Psalms, actually. In Acts chapter 1.16, Jesus has just ascended to heaven. The disciples are gathered in the upper room, and they're getting ready to replace Judas. And if we pick it up in 15, we see that in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. I think, wow, what a a cool phrase for for, uh, Luke to write. Because as Peter's speaking, Peter shows us that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. David was the one who wrote the psalm, the book of Psalms. And he also includes with that, that being scripture. We see the same thing if you flip over just to chapter 425. This is when Peter and John have been released from prison. They've just gotten uh, arrested for healing and preaching the name of Jesus. And now they've been released. And in verse 23 it says, On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your servant, our father David. And then, you know, quotes from the book of Psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Okay, so again, just nestled in the text there. If you don't, if you, sometimes you read right over the top of it, but... Is Peter saying that Scripture came about because the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David? And that's this concept of inspiration that we're going to go into in a little more detail. If you look at the book of Matthew, I'm going to take back to Matthew chapter 22. And these are, these are uh, similar passages, so I've listed them both. We're only going to look at Matthew. These are just two different accounts of the same thing. Matthew chapter 22. This is Jesus now speaking. Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with the Pharisees. And uh, in verse 41, it says, Why did, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, 
calls him Lord, for he says, and then he goes on to quote in the book of Psalms. So again, Psalm was, was an integral part of the scriptures that was available to them at this, <laughs> at this time. Yeah, I want you to, maybe we can, we'll close it. If it gets to be extremely warm in here because the door is closed, let, please somebody let me know and we'll open it back up. I don't want anybody to get too hot. So Jesus now again attributes David's speech through the book of Psalms um, from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is the concept of inspiration. Now, let's focus in on 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to get a little bit more of a deeper picture into what this means. And we're going to use a little bit of an inductive Bible study to help us understand this concept. So if we go to 2 Peter chapter 1, we've seen that Scripture is given by the expiration of God, as declared by Paul in the book of Timothy. We've seen a number of instances in which the actual author, it says that the author wrote through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to get a little bit of a deeper picture on how this might happen. So if we read 2 Peter chapter 1, And it says, And we have heard the word of the prophet made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, and he says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So I'm going to show you a picture. It's going to seem very random for a minute. Okay, we've got a picture of a boat. A ship, actually. Excuse me. My father-in-law would have been upset if I would have called it a boat. The ship. The ship is in the middle of a storm. Okay. Now explain to me as you as you look at the picture and think about this. What direction is will the ship go? And you don't have to. I'm not looking for like right or left or up or down, but. Okay, so it's going to go with the current of the water. So. So wherever the storm takes it. Right? Wherever the storm takes it? What if the captain doesn't want to go that way? Does he, how much choice does the captain have ultimately in that process? Okay, so he can apply some of his skill, some of his knowledge to maybe slow the direction or, or move it slightly. Um, but there's a process by which he is now kind of submitting to the, to, the, to the currents and to whatever the direction of the wind, and sometimes it might take him where he doesn't necessarily expect to go or, or want to go, and he's kind of left at the mercy of the sea, right? So let me, let's, let's, let's look at what might appear to be another random story, and this is going to be in Acts chapter 27. 
But as we read, as you're, as you're flipping there, we're reading in Second Peter. Peter says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean, you know, as we read this and we study this and we try to understand this, we're left with trying to understand what does it mean to be carried along by the Holy Spirit? And so if I'm trying to understand this passage, then one and what we're going to see, and as we will practice at the end of, the, at the end of this class, is it's best to go back to the Greek and figure out what that word is, that Greek word carry. And then what we want to do a lot of times is we read that in the Greek, then where else is that used in the Bible? Because the Bible, how it's used in other verses, can be very instructive on what is meaning here. And so what does that word mean, and where else is that word being used? And it turns out that that word is used in another place, and that's Acts chapter 27. Now, we find in Acts chapter 27, so bear with me here as we kind of set this up a little bit, we find ourselves following the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is being sent to Rome. And as you know, primary means of transportation in that day was by, by ship. Okay? So if we pick this up in 13, Acts chapter 27, verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had attained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Nor'easter, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Cyrus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And then he goes on to say, you know, that they, what they did to try to lighten the load and hope to be saved. Now, in two instances in these verses, the same Greek word used that the, Holy, that the men were carried by the Holy Spirit is used. Okay, so carried along. You can look it up. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Turns out to be the Greek word pharaoh. Okay, P-H-E-R-O. Now that means nothing to us generally. And when I'm doing this kind of study, I don't get necessarily fixated on what the word is. It's more about the definition and where it's used somewhere else. That word means to be carried along, led in a certain direction. But it turns out that Luke uses the exact same word when he's describing the ship's movement within the storm. So they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So in the NIV, the phrase is driven along. Maybe in some of the other translations, I didn't check. Maybe some of the other translations, it's actually carried along. Same Greek word. 
Okay. So that means we can allow, we can use this concept of a ship's movement within a storm to help us understand the nature of the Holy Spirit leading these men as they write. Okay? So the ship was not completely able to go where it wanted to go. It was kind of at the mercy of the storm. The storm took it. And they had a desire. They had a plan. They wanted to go somewhere else. But ultimately, they had to just pull up, says they, at the verse, um, so we gave way to it and were driven along. That's what they said in verse 15. And then again in 17, and let the ship be driven along. They had to basically just turn it over and say, the storm's going to take the ship or the storm's going to take the ship. We just got to let it go. So that's, that's what this word means. Okay, that's the picture we can have of this word. Now taking that back to the concept of inspiration. These men, had, they had wills and they had processes and thoughts. But to some extent, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, just as a ship is carried along by a storm. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Charles Ryrie, he, he puts it this way. He says, in the same manner as that ship was driven, directed, or carried by the wind, God directed and moved the human writers he used to produce the books of the Bible. Though the wind was the strong force that moved the ship along, the sailors were not asleep and inactive. Similarly, the Holy Spirit was the guiding force that directed the writers, who nevertheless played their own active roles in writing the scripture. Okay, so let's just, let's just pause there for a minute. Any thoughts, questions, comments, anything to... <laughs> That's a good question. Is that, does that mean that it makes prophecy in the Old Testament being undergirded by the New Testament so we can get an affirmation to see what I'm trying to think? I do. So the one benefit is is we have we have the New Testament to confirm the Old Testament, right? Because we have the benefit of reading the New Testament authors who are confirming where scripture at the time the Old Testament was coming from. We don't have inspired writing. Again, I, I see what you're saying because we don't have anything following the New Testament to confirm the New Testament. Right, you don't see anything where the authors of the New Testament say... Well, there is one spot. Okay, good. Let's see, if, let's see if I can find it off the top of my head. Uh, it's in the book of... It's in one of Peter's books. Chances of me finding it right off here is going to probably be slim. (laughs) 
There is a spot in the book of Peter where he talks about the, the writings of Paul as scripture. Ten bonus points for the first person who finds it. Is that it? Did you look at that? Is that the... Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Thanks. key with this particular passage is he's, he's talking about the writings of Paul and then he uses the phrase other scriptures which would insinuate that he's including Paul's writing as scripture is the, is the, uh, is the thought process there it says um, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which is true, <laughs> but not impossible, Wayne, right? It's not, not like your, your book of parts there, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. And so the key there is the fact that he uses other scriptures. He seems to be lumping Paul's works in with the rest of scripture, Terry. That's what the, that argument would make. Um. So that question also bleeds over into, I know we'll talk about canonization, right? Because how did, how did the early church decide? And, and combine that with Revelation where it talks about the closing of the, of the Revelation, right? Right. So I think you, I think you can get there. But you can get there. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, not as, it's not as neat and tidy as... You know, the New Testament talking about the Old Testament. But yeah. And we will touch on many of those things when we get to canon because the people recognized these books as being different and being a product of God. A question when it says the writers um, play their own active role in writing the scriptures. Does that just mean? writing the words down? Was there anybody proofreading what the writers wrote? So there would not have been necessarily, a, in most cases there would not have been a proofreader. All right, they were just writing a letter. And uh, in some cases there would have been, like Paul oftentimes used someone to write for him. So Paul sometimes dictated to someone who actually penned them. But uh, you, but the other question, the other aspect is, th so somehow, and this is where it gets to be 
hard for us to understand because there was there's there's, there's differences between writing styles of even the authors of the Bible, right? We can recognize that each each one of these people brought something unique. Um, Luke was a doctor, and you can see he's got a different writing style than uh, you know Peter, who was a fisherman and an apostle. So somehow, in some way, God used their backgrounds, educations, personalities, and therefore writing styles differently, and yet still inspired them to write, and still basically recorded, you know, told them what to say. If you follow me. So their own interpretation is still directed by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's stupid. They still would have their own interpretations, right? Well, when you when you mean interpretation, right? They're 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 somewhat writing. So we have to we have to balance this thing between straight out dictation, right, where they're just being dictated to, and they're completely separate from the process with with the other extreme where they're just writing whatever they want you know what i mean so somehow there's somehow there's a there's a balance there where god gave them exactly what he wanted them to say but in their own style they wrote it you know what i mean have you ever heard the musical instrument analogy? Or, I don't know. Go, you, no, I have not. Go for it. I don't it. know if you like it or not. <laughs> I'll tell you when you're done. No. <laughs> I have 20 instruments sitting in the room, yeah. and I play each one individually. They all sound different, but it's still me playing, playing them. If I play a French horn, it sounds different. If okay. I'm playing a, yeah. you know, I, I've always appreciated Saxophone that. or something yeah. else. Right. Which is why you see the different writing styles coming out. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that also, and it goes along with what you're saying, is that it's what does God breathe mean? And one of the things I've thought about before is that, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, you know, when God made Adam, he was a lifeless form, and it says that God breathed into him the breath of life. So I've always kind of wondered if there's some type of thing going on with God breathing even the New Testament says it was God breathed. Right. So it's not necessarily that they wrote exactly what God was actually dictating to them, but was breathing life into it, taking into account, like Adam was Adam. You know, he wasn't something else. You know, that thing. Yeah. So I see what you're saying because we do see God breathed Adam. Adam, but but there was something different about the way that these guys wrote. I mean, because it says the yeah, you want to leave it back open? Yeah, it gets stuffy in here quick. Um, because when it when Peter's talking, or he's he's specifically talking about the Bible, and so he's saying that the Holy Spirit carried these men along, right? And they, it wasn't they weren't writing out of their own will. So I think there's something else too, uh, something else supernatural going on besides just being saved or just having the Holy Spirit that led them to write these things. Um, but it's, it's difficult to put this all together, and it has led to various concepts and thoughts throughout history. So I'm going to, well, let's talk about a couple of these, and maybe this can help even frame our conversation. 
Uh, as you can imagine, this was a topic of discussion for many decades and centuries, and there have many different there have been many different things put forward as what could this mean. And so, so one one is known as natural inspiration, and that just means that these guys were really smart and didn't need any help. Okay. They, they were geniuses. They did not need any super ha supernatural help in any way to write the Bible. Um, I think that's, that's a difficult position to take because it would be very hard for the Bible to have one theme written by 40 different people over that many years if that were simply the case. But that has been a theory put forward uh, in, in history. Another one is called dynamic inspiration. So it says, well, they were geniuses, but they were also spirit-filled. Okay, so there was, they were just super smart guys, but they were also spirit-filled. There's the concept of degree inspiration. This goes a little bit more to the actual product and not so much the means of how we got it, but but this is within the Bible, some parts are more inspired than other parts. Um, you got partial inspiration. Some parts of the Bible inspired and other parts are not. And then this one kind of gets back to the process. It says, well, the concepts of the Bible are inspired, but the words are not inspired. So that means that that would be a little bit more like um, the way I picture this, at least, would be the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you know, it's kind of like when your boss comes in and says, hey, I need, I need you to, to put together for me a presentation on what our latest sales project's going to be, right? And he, he just floats out an idea or a concept, and he leaves it up to you to do all the work. And you put together a 30-page presentation with figures, and that. that's kind of what that would be like. It's like Jesus saying, hey, I need you to just... God says, I, I want you to write something along these lines, and then, the, and then the writers just pen something. So it's a very, um, I would say it, it takes more of God out of the picture and puts more of the person in the picture. That's been, been titled conceptual inspiration. We would say that that's false, okay? That, we, that is not the way we believe the inspiration process to be. But somehow the writers, and this is where it gets a little bit more than I think our minds can understand, somehow the writers had more of, a, of an influence because we see their writing style. But yet they, we believe it was more than just giving concepts and then I choose the word. In fact, if we were to, I, I think this is an interesting quote. Um, formally, and this kind of gets into some other things we'll learn here in the future as well, it says, formally all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in full inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. But some did not extend inspiration to the words of the text. It became necessary to say, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. To counter the teaching that not all parts of the Bible were inspired, one had to say, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. 
Then because some did not want to ascribe total accuracy to the Bible, it was necessary to say, I believe, in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. Each addition to the basic statement arose because of an erroneous teaching. Is ultimately what would happen. So that would be our stance. We would believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of the Bible. So that we believe that the entire entire Bible, right, plenary means the entire thing, and that's consistent with the book of Timothy, right, all scripture, and we believe that the original autographs, right, the original manuscripts written by these men were inerrant and infallible, and we believe in verbal, meaning we believe that, that God chose it down to the words, that he didn't just float a concept and leave it up to them to do that. He chose it down to the words, somehow at the same time allowing the individual authors, personalities, educations, and styles to come through. Okay. Any, any other questions or thoughts or as we kind of land on that? If you don't, if you don't believe the words that landed on the page, are the words of God, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble in terms of the authority of Scripture over our lives, right? Right, you're, you're right. Gonna, you're going to run into a lot of problems. Yeah. So. How do we <clears throat> how do we feel about inspiration? <laughs> I got a thumbs up. That's good. <laughs> so it's funny because um, you know as we as we think about these things and we think about many different kinds of doctrine, right? We we can do our best to read them and to study them, but ultimately there, there comes down, we always are going to reach some spot, some place, some limit at which we say, okay, that's the best I could do to understand that, and I, and I, can't, I can't get it any more than that, right? You think, think of the virgin birth, think of Christ having 100% human nature and 100% God, you know, you just, you, you think about the Trinity, you think about all these things, and you can understand what the scripture says, but there comes a point where you say that I that's all I can't understand it any more than that. And I and I really feel like inspiration is one of those things, right? We can take the passages, we can understand what the scripture says, um, but ultimately, then it becomes a matter of faith, right? We we just we we have faith that in this inspiration process. However God did it, however it was like the ship carried in the storm, that ultimately God gave us the product that he wanted us to have, right? And, and so we do our best to understand what we can, and we leave all of the secret things up to the Lord and say, that's, that's what we can do. Um, yes, sir. This, uh, in in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, chapter, from the 10th verse of the public verse, <laughs> Apostle Paul, yeah. to the marriage, I give the charge. Right. This is 
<laughs> I know. I know where you're at. <laughs> Not I, but the Lord. And that's what it says in the, in the tenth verse. Uh, the wife should not serve mm-hmm. her husband, but she does, and should remain unmarried. Okay, that that. Okay, now on the twelfth verse, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I'm going to refer you back to Chris's podcast from last Sunday. <laughs> was it last Sunday? He did, I think it, it was or two Sundays ago. I think it was two Sundays. Two, I think it was. If, if it wasn't, it was the Sunday before last, and he, he, had, he had tackled this thing. But um, no, it's a great question, right? It's a good question. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. And then he goes on to deliver some teaching. Any, anybody, anybody remember what Chris said? Or have any thoughts on this? Did, did you catch it when Chris talked about it? Or? I should have wrote it down. Isn't there, um, doesn't Paul indicate in Galatians, I think it's Galatians, where he, uh, that he left after the Damascus Road incident, like he spent like 14 years in, in Arabia and being taught by Jesus. So it makes me wonder if maybe, you know, this is not something that Jesus actually taught me, but he said, yeah I, I think that's pretty close uh, at least in in so far as to say Paul I think Paul was not giving us a direct command from the Lord even though he was inspired to write what he wrote what he was saying wasn't a divine commandment that you must be single or you must be married um, and so that's why he says, I, not the Lord. But I still believe Paul was inspired to write what he wrote. That makes sense. Does that make sense? I, I don't know whether I said that clearly or not. Well, he was still being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right. To, to answer the question that they had posed and to write this. But it's not like he was saying, I'm writing you a command that, that the Lord requires us to follow, so to speak. That's 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 how I think it what it means. Um, I think that's what Chris said a couple weeks ago too. It was basically that being single or married was not there was no it was not wrong and it was right. not right. I mean, either, you know, there was no biblical mandate for either, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's a tricky one, right? That's tricky. 
Okay, any other thoughts? And I would agree with that. If God took the time to reveal himself to us, I think he would have done it in a way that was exactly what he wanted and and uh, with without error and, and so on and so forth. Okay. We're actually, we did that a little faster than I anticipated. It's only 7.05, so I'm trying to decide where to go from here. Um, we could start into the next next lesson. You just don't have notes for it at the time. But I could get you the notes after the fact. I don't want to cause you any grief or consternation. What's that? Translation. Did it print translation? No, we haven't. Okay, so that's what we did last week, right? Oh, I'm looking at the one. No, it may still be in the packet. I may have accidentally printed those off, but those would have been the same notes that we did last time since I'm, I, I, but I wanted you to have, I didn't know that printed that one off too. Um, so let's do this. We can start into the next section I don't want to waste the time or we can if, hey if everyone says they just want to go we can go but if you have kids in the nursery it doesn't matter right you could just stuck for another 20 minutes <laughs> or youth group Sources to kind of corroborate what he's saying, but he's looking at this as 
you've got all these multiple authors, and he takes it as multiple witnesses at, at a case. And each one of these witnesses has their perception of how things went. They okay. Have, it's filtered through their life's experiences. And he said the same thing applies to the authors of the Gospels and the other letters. God gave that message down to them, but when you were saying about Adam, that doesn't erase that person. And so he he says when you look at this, and kind of like, and then you also said where you can tell Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts textually criticize how that goes together. Right. Um, so it's just if someone's interested in reading more about that, it's very interesting too because he he went from before the book being a believer, you know, before he started investigating the Gospels. Right. That's fantastic. What what what's the book title? It's called Cold Case Christianity. Okay. And there's also a kids version that kind of brings it down to the child level too. Sure. And who's the? Uh, it's it's called. I, I'd have to get that one again. But Wallace J. Warner Wallace, author. Wallace. Give me the clip notes version. That's great. All right. Well, let's just start into this here, and we will um, we'll just do a little bit. Canonicity, all right? Do we have the right books? So, what is, let's just, what first, let's just talk about this word. What, and I promise I will email, we won't get too far into this tonight, so I will email these slides out and then I'll print them so you'll have them for next week. What, um, when we say the word canon though, the canon of scripture and the process of canonicity, what comes to your mind? What does that mean? Who are the canonizers? Okay. Does anybody think like that? Because <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I think of. Canon. Boom. <laughs> it's a funny, it's kind of a funny word, right? Because it's not something we we use in the context that we're meaning here. We temp we typically think of a of a big gun. That's not that's not going to be actually at the right. It actually means like a, a measure or a rule, kind of a standard by which you make a decision on something. 
So that's when we say the canon of Scripture. That's why we mean it's like the authority, the complete set, the rule. So you hear that. We, we, we don't use that word a lot as much anymore, but you used to hear that a lot. They would talk about the canon of Scripture or the canon of this or, or something to that effect. It's a rule. So we're talking about canonicity. We're talking about, what, what, what did you say, the canonizers? The people that did it. The people who, who made some of these decisions? Yeah. yeah. And really the whole question now is getting to be which books, which, which books end up here, right? Which books do we recognize as, as, as divine products? Um, there's been a lot made of this in the last decade or so, right? You think about the Da Vinci Code movies. Remember that? Tom Hanks yeah. played in the Da Vinci Code movies, and you had the book come out, the Da Vinci Code. I, I haven't actually ever read it or seen it. Has anybody watched? Well, I've seen the movie, but it's been years. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen the movie. But, you know, the concept of um, there's a lot of books that should have been in here that aren't in here, or there are books in here that shouldn't be in here. Kind of, kind of goes both ways. And so the question becomes, how do you recognize the canonical status of a book? In other words, how, if it were up to us, I mean, let's just think about this. If it were up to us or you or how do you know, how would you go about establishing whether a book should be in here or not? What would be the criteria? back to our earlier conversation, I think the Old Testament is pretty easy because Jesus Christ, historically we know that Jesus had the Old Testament as we see it today. Yep. Um, and, and it was quoted frequently right. and, you know, they, I mean, for me, the, the Apocrypha was not included in that at the time, which would have already been written, right, because it was in the intertestamental period. So that that's the, that's the really easy part for me. Okay. <clears throat> And that's, a, that's, okay, so you mentioned a very good criteria. The, the New Testament writers frequently reference, what did they frequently reference as scripture? And, and you see Jesus using that a lot. So we know he, he quoted from the law and the prophets, and uh, he quoted from Psalms and some historical books. Okay, so, so, that, so that could be a criteria, good. Along with that prophecy in the Old Testament, Okay, so so fulfilled prophecy or prophecy that was seen to be fulfilled. Okay. What else? Think about the New Testament. But can't contradict, right? Okay. You read from the supposed other Gospels. There's anything in there that contradicts something else that happened in the Old Testament? Something that Jesus said that obviously. Right. Good. So, so that's a reasonable criteria. It must be in. It must be consistent. 
If you have multiple multiple books saying one thing and then another book that says something else, then that should cause you to question the authenticity of that of that particular book. I think they use a criteria of uh, the writer had to be directly in contact with Jesus Christ through his life. That seems pretty reasonable, right? Let's let's make sure the author was someone who was in contact with Jesus. Okay. Or not far removed, you know, maybe someone who's who's trained by someone who's with Jesus. Anything else? You have historically that it was accepted pretty early on. I, I wouldn't want somebody to be adding one, you know, 400 years after the early <laughs> church. And think, I think this one probably should be added. That seems reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, guys, because you, you just came up with the, uh, oops, wrong button here. Where's my... You just came up with the criteria for canonicity. It, it's it's not that hard, <laughs> right? They they the books must have. So this is now the New Testament. And next week we'll come back and we'll look at the old and and the new a little bit. But but when you think about it, we're, we're often led to believe, or what maybe popular culture wants you to believe is that. There were hundreds of thousands of different manuscripts and books and gospels and everything out there, and somehow these these guys, you know, locked themselves into the back room and, and in a really shady practice, trimmed it down to four gospels, which they've given us today, simply so that they could, you know, control the narrative or hide hide the guilt of other people, right? That's kind of what they want you to believe. There's all these books out there. There's so many books, and, and yet they whittled it down to four. And I think what we'll find is that's just not the case, right? There weren't that many other books out there, and it was pretty obvious which books belonged and which books didn't. And so when you look at the New Testament, they said, you know what, the, the book should have apostolic origin. The person who wrote it should be recognized as an apostle, all right, that's going to be that's going to be your disciples, or it's going to have to be somebody who spent a considerable amount of time with an apostle. That's pretty reasonable. Luke, for example, wasn't an apostle, but he was the personal physician for the apostle Paul, and he traveled with Paul. Okay, so that that's someone who has indirect apostolic origin. Same with Mark. Mark Mark wasn't a, a, an apostle, but he was uh, he traveled with Peter. And so he spent a lot of his time with, with the Apostle Peter. That's going to ground a lot of things, right? That's going to ground it in, in the fact that they were with Jesus in his ministry. And then the book must have been widely accepted by the other church, by the early church. There was, you know, there was, you know, the years as the books were coming, the early church recognized, you know what, that letter to the Corinthians, that was, that was, that was written by Paul, and that was inspired, and, and, and it was just, it was kind of one of those things, I think they just knew, they, so they widely accepted, and if some other gospel came in that they hadn't heard of, and wasn't accepted by the church, it was scrutinized, and then as Wayne said, it must be consistent and compatible with the other books, and the scripture basically testified with itself. And so based upon those criteria, then you you can decide which of the books should be in the New Testament 
and which ones didn't. Um, so that's it. That's your criteria for canonicity. I, I hesitate to go too much farther without you guys having notes. So maybe we should just stop there in the next week. It's 7.20. We'll just stop there, and the next week we'll come back and pick up. We'll talk about the Old Testament canon. We'll talk a little bit more in detail about the New Testament canon. Uh, we'll look to see what books some people had questions and what books were kind of universally accepted, and we'll look at some of those details. And then hopefully at the end of that class, we'll be pretty confident that we have the right books that God wanted us to have, uh, the ones that he inspired, and uh, we'll keep marching down the line.